0: We're in this series of sermons about the return of Jesus, and and we're in the middle, actually, toward the end of what must happen between today and when Jesus returns. What did he say had to happen? Then, in uh, about three weeks, we're going to start talking about the actual return of Christ. What did he say would happen? What will that look like? Uh, From an earthly standpoint, what will that look like in heaven? And we weren't going to go through Revelation verse by verse, but we'll be working our way through the Revelation and maybe some references to Daniel off and on in Matthew 24 and Luke 21 and so on. So that's why you've been reading what you've been reading. Uh, Several weeks ago, we talked about every nation, tongue, and tribe, that the gospel has to go to every language and every people group in the whole planet. And that is almost completed. It is not yet done, but it is almost finished. Jesus said that had to go around the world. And then related to that is the harvest that we talked about last week, that uh, there's going to be a last worldwide wave of salvation and revival around the world. And then Paul and Peter and Jude all talk about what is usually called the great apostasy, or that's just a fancy word for a big lie. Um, there will be a great lie take hold in the church that Paul calls the great falling away. There are numerous references to the bride making herself ready. The bride has to be pure and spotless, worthy to marry the lamb. We're going to talk about those two today. There will be an antichrist government that will be established in the world to oppose Jesus and his people. We're going to talk about that in a couple of weeks and Israel must come to their Messiah. The Jewish people are going to catch on that since the rest of the world is following their Messiah, maybe they should too. (laughs) And Israel is going to join in to Christ in the church. And Paul says in Galatians, we will be one perfect man. That's the end of all things is when Israel finally comes to their Messiah. We will talk to you about that later. Um, in a couple weeks, we'll get onto this Antichrist and Beast and 666 stuff, and I promise you, I will not get all weird and uh, spooky and scary on you. Okay, it is very serious and it is very real, but it is not Hollywood, and it isn't Left Behind. Um, yeah, we'll get into that later. Okay, but today we're going to talk about this great falling away or this lie that will take root in the church and the purification of the bride or the or the church. So, Ephesians 5 says this, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is head of the wife, as also Christ is head of the church. He is the Savior of the body. Therefore, let as just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing but that she should be holy and without blemish this is a great mystery but i speak concerning christ and the church so paul admits that this is this is very deep mystery but there's a metaphor in marriage of jesus and us and we are we are called the bride of christ in revelation a couple different times let us rejoice and be glad and give, us, give him honor to him for the time has come for the wedding feast of the lamb and his bride has prepared herself. She has been given the finest of pure white linen to wear for the fine linen represents the good deeds of God's holy people. And then again in Revelation 21, one of the angels, one of the seven angels talked with me saying, come, I will show you the bride, the lamb's wife. So Ephesians and Revelation and all through the Old Testament, Israel is God's wife, um, the church us collectively are called the bride of Christ in scripture. I am not the bride of Christ, Ted is not the bride of Christ. No gender confusion here, but collectively as a whole, even the individual women of the church, they're not you are not the bride of Christ. Together all of us, the church is the wife of the lamb or the bride of the Christ, a bride of Christ in Ephesians, Paul says, wives, your role corresponds to the church and husbands, your role corresponds to Jesus. And we love each other like We together love Jesus and vice versa. So I just want you to notice here that there's this, you've heard me use this language quite a bit, but here's the scriptures for it. And what Paul says Jesus is doing to us right now is washing us clean. To present us to himself a glorious church without spot or wrinkle or blemish. Just as he is the perfect lamb of God without any spot or blemish, we will be, as his bride, we will be completely clean, white as snow, washed of all guilt, with no flaws whatsoever, by his word and his blood. Amen? Amen. So, there's this picture in scripture that we are the bride of Christ. And one of the main, most important things that must happen before Jesus returns is the preparation of the bride, us, the church. We have to be washed completely pure and spotless, we must make ourselves worthy to live and to rule with Him. If He is the perfect spotless Lamb of God, we have to be the perfect spotless bride. And we don't do that out of our own goodness. We do it by, Peter says, the sanctification of the Spirit. All right? But we have to be prepared. That's happening in some measure, but we've got a long ways to go. Right? Right? just as jesus is called the last adam the church is the last eve jesus is the last adam the bible says that the first adam brought sin and death into the world but that the last adam jesus brought life and salvation the first eve in a perfect environment with nothing to gain chose satan the last eve in a hellish environment with everything to lose We'll choose Jesus. Hello? You've heard me say it this way. Rick Joyner says that Satan has a boast against God that God has never been able to answer. Satan can say, when you made it perfect for her, she chose me. But by the time this thing is over, God will be able to answer Satan's boast that when you made it hell for them, they chose me. Satan can say to God, now, you made it perfect for her and she chose me. But by the end of this, God will be able to tell Satan, you threw everything you had at her and you made it hell on earth. And she had no reason to trust me, but she did. So this preparation of the bride is happening but the church is far from free of hypocrisy and compromise. We have some ways to go. The stains of sin have to be completely washed off. The blemishes are not acceptable. The spots have to be removed. Ephesians 5 says Jesus is washing us. In First Timothy and Second Peter, we're told ourselves to wash ourselves and make sure that we are removing sin as compared to a stain or a spot or a blemish. that We're removing sin. The spots in the church have to come off before Jesus comes for his bride. He's not coming for a halfway cleansed girl. He's coming for a spotlessly white as snow, perfect lady. In Jude... Jude writes about this right before the return of Christ he says some ungodly people have wormed their way into your churches saying that God's marvelous grace allows us to live immoral lives the condemnation of such people was recorded long ago for they have denied our only master and Lord Jesus Christ I want to remind you that the Lord first rescued the Israelites from Egypt but later he destroyed those who did not remain faithful And don't forget Sodom and Gomorrah and their neighboring towns, which were filled with immorality and every kind of sexual perversion. Those cities were destroyed by fire and serve as a warning of the eternal fire of God's judgment. But these people scoff at things they do not understand. Like unthinking animals, they do whatever they feel like doing, and so they bring about their own destruction. What sorrow awaits them? They perish in their rebellion." These people are spots at your love feast, eating with you without fear. They care only for themselves. They are like clouds without rain. They are like trees in autumn. These are people in the church, Jude is talking about, who claim to be Christians. They are like trees in autumn that are doubly dead, for they bear no fruit and have been pulled out by the roots. They are like wild waves of the sea, churning up the foam of their own shameful deeds. They are like wandering stars doomed forever to blackest darkness. Enoch prophesied about these people. He said the Lord is coming with countless thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on them. He will convict every person of all the ungodly things they have done and for all the insults that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. So Jude, speaking of the church that isn't yet clean, he says at the beginning of his letter, he says, I really wanted to write you some happy, joyful stuff about the salvation of Jesus. But he, he says, I, I can't not tell you, warn you about this hypocrisy and intentional sin and false teaching that's going on in the church. And then he describes, his entire book then, is a description of these counterfeit Christians who say they have the grace of God, but they live worldly lives. So Ephesians 5 says that Jesus is going to wash every spot from his bride and make us pure and holy We use the phrase white as snow. Jude verse 14 says the spots are people. They are spots at your love feast. Jude 14 says the spots are people. Fake Christians. Counterfeit believers who claim the grace of God, but they live in hypocrisy and unrepentant sin. Christians who deny that God will judge them for what they're hiding or excusing, or explaining away. So the purification of the bride is the removal of counterfeits and hypocrites from the church. Jesus will begin to remove the spots and stains from his bride in the same way that he pulls up the weeds out of the wheat field that we talked about last Sunday. That At the same time that the bride is maturing and becoming the greatest glory and power and miracles and salvation and unity in the church, as the bride is purified and begins to put on her wedding dress, as she gets more pure and white and glorious, the spots will show up very glaringly. Just like as the wheat matures, the weeds show up in the parable that we talked about last week. Jesus said to me on November 30th, I already told you this, Jesus said to me on November 30th, I am coming to divide like never before. So he said the harvest is this time when there is a great revival of salvation and more people than ever before in all time put together are going to come to Jesus. But it is also the time when all the seeds the devil has planted will also come to full maturity. So it is in in the church. Jesus said in that parable, the field is the world. But in the picture of us as the bride of Christ having our spots washed off, it's happening in the church too, that the whiter and brighter and more glorious the true church gets, the more clearly the compromised and hypocritical and unrepentant hiding sin worldly church will show up. So judgment begins with the house of God. So this morning... We're going to talk about what's going to happen in the church when all those that Satan has planted into the church will have to be removed. And Paul calls this the great falling away that you read in 2 Thessalonians last week, I hope. So we've got this picture where Jesus and the angel in Revelation refer to us as the bride of Christ. Paul uses that, the bride being washed clean. Paul uses this language of the great falling away. Jesus called it the separating of the sheep and the goats. John the Baptist called it the separating of the chaff and the wheat. It's all the same thing. It's Jesus coming to divide like never before. His people from everyone else. So let's look at 2 Thessalonians and see what Paul says about this this great falling away or this great rebellion against God that's going to happen amongst Christians. 2 Thessalonians 2. Now, dear brothers and sisters, let us clarify some things about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and how we will be gathered to meet Him. Don't be so easily shaken or alarmed by those who say that the day of the Lord has already begun. Don't believe them. Even if they claim to have had a spiritual vision, a revelation, or a letter supposedly from us, don't be fooled by what they say. For that day will not come until there is a great rebellion against God. That's uh, a more modern translation, the literal translations of like New King James and so on use the phrase, this great falling away. There's going to be in the church, amongst people who call themselves Christians, there's going to be a lie take hold that will make people actually rebel against God while they say they are Christians. It's described here, it's described, the entire book of Jude is about them. Second Peter 2 and 3 are about them. These people. Paul says, Jesus will not return until after there is a great falling away or a great rebellion against God. Skipping down to verse 5, do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? Paul preached about it. I'm going to preach about it. Here we go. Now you know what is restraining that he may be revealed in his own time, for the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way, and then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan with all power signs and lying wonders. We'll talk about all this in two weeks and with all unrighteous deception among those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. And for this reason, God will send them strong delusion that they should believe the lie that they may all be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. So Paul says in the church and the world, there's going to be these people who powerfully believe a lie because they don't love the truth. They want something to be true, so they insist that it is. Then they end up believing it is so strongly that they will kill over it. Revelation 22 says this, Blessed are those who do his commandments, that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter through the gates into the city of God. But outside are dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and whoever loves and practices a lie. So, I know some of you are already getting scared. (laughs) What if that's me and I don't know it? Hey, right here, whoever loves and practices a lie, these people, Paul says, they refuse to love the truth. The angel here in Revelation says they loved the lie. They wanted it to be true. I'll tell you what the lies are in just a minute. But these these are not people who were accidentally deceived. These are people who refused the truth on purpose. Even calling themselves Christians, they refused the truth. They loved the lie. Jesus spoke about these people in Matthew 24. Jesus said, answered and said to them, pay close attention that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ and will deceive many. I don't think this is Jim Jones and Charles Manson kind of cult leaders. Jesus said, they will come in my name, saying that I am the Christ, but they will deceive you. These are Christian teachers who write books and have podcasts and lead large churches, and they're leading people away from Jesus while saying, I'm coming in Jesus' name, and yes, he's the Christ. But the things they teach about him are so false They're not leading people to the real Jesus. Same chapter, down a few verses, Jesus says this, and this is what will happen in the church before he returns. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. Thank you, Jesus. That's a really encouraging word. And then many will be offended, or another translation is made to stumble. They will stumble in their walk with God. And they will betray one another and will hate one another. Then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. And because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. And I told you a few weeks ago, this love here is agape. The agape love of God in people's hearts will grow cold. So this entire passage is not about the world, it's about us. That Christians, people who claim to be followers of Jesus, when things get rough, when the world starts delivering us up to tribulation, professing believers in the church will stumble. What's that look like? It means they get scared and they don't want to die. They don't want to pay a cost for their faith. They don't want to give up their comfortable American life. And they will betray one another and hate one another. And because lawlessness in the church will abound, the love of many will grow cold. So this deception that Jesus and Paul and Peter and Jude all write about is a deception of lawlessness. You notice how many times Peter, I mean, see, Paul and Jesus use that word. Peter uses it. Um, Jude didn't use that word, but he describes them in a very negative sense. There's this deception of lawlessness that kills God's love in people's hearts who claim to be Christians, but they don't have God's love. They don't have a love for the truth, and they will end up fighting the bride and Jesus. Notice that in all of the passages I've had you read so far from, uh, that describe the return of Jesus and the times right beforehand, and in all of Revelation, never, ever once, never, At Jesus' second return, does he address legalism or self-righteousness? He addressed that the first time. The second time, he exclusively is coming to kill the lawless, those who refuse any authority or rules, and I will do whatever I damn well please. And I mean that literally. Legalism and self-righteousness is not a problem at the end of the age because you will be a true follower of Jesus or you will be completely opposed to him. The spirit of religion will will die. (laughs) There will be no mediocre, cool middle ground. So self-righteousness and legalism are not a problem. Lawlessness in the church, a refusal of any rules. I will do whatever I want. I don't need to be told. I don't need to be taught. I don't need to have any authorities in my life. I will do what I believe and want to do. Both in the world and the church, lawlessness is the problem that is continually described by Jesus, Peter, Paul, Jude. That's the deception that will come into the church right before he returns as the spots are made manifest as the real bride gets cleaner and purer and whiter and more fervent and more exclusive and more covenanted and ready for her groom those that refuse to do that will draw away and get agitated and show up by what they say what they do what they believe So what's going to happen to the spot? What's going to happen to these people in this falling away? Jude makes it very plain God will kill them. He says, remember, God brought the Israelites out of Egypt, and then when they didn't obey, he destroyed them. He says, remember Sodom and Gomorrah, when God destroyed the people who wouldn't obey. Ananias and Sapphira are examples of that. Those who died because they took communion falsely are examples of that. Alexander and Hymenaeus are examples of that. Those are two false teachers that Paul writes to Timothy about. He says, I have handed them over to Satan so they will die. I hope they repent before they do. Second Timothy. You read in Revelation 3 this week where Jesus addresses one of the churches where Jezebel was this woman who was teaching people in the church about that sexual sin was okay, and in fact it was part of their worship, of Jesus was fornication. Jesus says, I give you a little time to repent, but if you don't, I will come and kill you. Those, exact, those are his exact words. I will kill you. Jesus said, I will kill you. In fact, he says three things. He says, I will make you sick. I will make you suffer intensely. The NIV says, I will kill you. If you claim to be a Christian, and you are in intentional, unrepentant sexual sin. I will take you out. Jesus said that. Revelation 3. You read it this week, right? Yep. Okay. But from other clues in Scripture, it's very obvious that most of these false Christians, these hypocrites, will not die. They will continue on with us. Most of the. Christians who know these scriptures and my mom and I had a discussion several months ago and she said, "Well, remember that before Jesus comes there's that great falling away." And so most people imagine that there's going to be this mass of people in the church who will all of a sudden quit believing in Jesus and go over here and follow something else. But that's not what Jude and Peter and Paul describe. It's people who continue to believe that they're believers. They stay in the church. Second Peter and Jude both say this. They're in, Jude says they're right there in your Sunday morning meetings. It's people who continue to believe that they're believers, their hearts are cold toward God, they love lies, and they hate the truth. There will have to be a separating, a very clear line of holiness will have to be drawn. And these people will claim that they are Christians and they will accuse the rest of us of not accepting them. Rick Joyner in his Final Quest book, if you've read that one, you know the vision that is the first half of the book. It is a battle, and it's not Christians versus the world. It's true believers versus people who say they're Christians, but they're being steered and driven by demons. How many of you read Final Quest? If you haven't, I highly recommend it, other than the Bible and John Bevere's undercover book. That one has probably shaped how I think and what I believe and what I'm looking for more than, more than any other. It's a very powerful prophecy. The falling away is not a leaving of Christianity in name. It is a terrible deception within the people who claim to believe in Jesus. People consider themselves believers, even having some measure of miraculous power, but they don't know Jesus. Matthew 7, Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name and cast out demons in your name and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. There it is again. So, The one group is the lawless group. The other group is the group Jesus says does the will of my Father in heaven who accepts the laws of God on our behavior, our actions, our thoughts, our beliefs. Remember that no one was more aware and eager and ready and watching for the coming of the Messiah than the Pharisees nobody wanted the messiah to come more than the pharisees they knew the prophecies they'd studied them they thought they had it all figured out and then when god's messiah didn't match who and what they thought was coming they hated him and they killed him the same exact crowd who welcomed him in with palm branches and hosanna hosanna to the king a week later is shouting, crucify him, crucify him, when he didn't do what they wanted him to do. It is the same people who are at the triumphal entry, worshiping him and praising him and crying, crucify him, his blood be on us and on our children. Because when they came into Jerusalem, they were expecting a certain kind of Messiah their definition of what the Christ would be, and he didn't match it, so they killed him. It will happen again. I said it will happen again. That many people who are watching for his return, just like the Pharisees were watching for his first coming, the people who are watching, thinking they're Christians, believing that they're followers of Jesus, when he comes and he doesn't match their imaginations and their unbiblical beliefs, they will hate him. And they will oppose him. They will actually resist him and hate him. And these are people who call themselves Christians. So, what, do the, what does this lie look like? Well, I can't say ultimately what all of it looks like. But I thought this week, and I made a list of some stuff that people believe that famous preachers teach, that are, is in books and whatever else that is not in the Bible. It is not the description of Jesus. It's the traditions of men. It's vain imaginations. That people believe that at best, if you believe these things, you're gonna to have to adjust real quickly. <laughs> or at worst, if you persist in believing these things, you'll end up opposing Jesus. So this is, I don't mean for this to be a complete list. I don't mean for this to address everything, and you may have other ideas, but just some things that I think are Christian doctrines taught in the church that are actually anti-Christ. Here we go. Jesus is a pacifist. It's not true. The first thing he will do when he comes back is lead a war and kill his enemies. Jesus accepts sinners in their sin. That is not true. He will accept anyone who repents, but he does not accept anyone in their sin. No one continues in sin in the kingdom of heaven. Anyone is acceptable if you will repent. Jesus welcomes everyone as they are. He doesn't judge anyone. Everyone is welcome, but not as we are. We're welcome when we say, I have been wrong and I need you to wash me clean. Hello? So in the name of love and preaching the gospel, it gets tweaked and perverted and the difference is tiny, but it's huge. That our expectations of Jesus is that he'll just welcome everybody. Anybody that wants to say his name is welcome. He says, you say my name, I don't know you. Because you're lawless. If you think that his goals are social justice or free government or community improvement, you're going to have a mind tweaking. If you think that Jesus died for your gun rights or your freedom of speech, you're in trouble. If you think he died to eliminate world poverty or stop all war, you're in trouble. He is about his kingdom. And we are on his side or not. Jesus is non confrontational, gentle peacekeeper. Now we're going to keep reading through Revelation. You don't want to be on the wrong side of his sword. You do not want to be on the wrong end of his sword. I believe in God. Belief is enough. No repentance is required. That is anti Christ. But you and I know that there are lots of people out there who say, oh yeah, cool, Jesus and I are cool. I believe in God. And they probably really mean it. And it happens in countries like ours where historically Christianity is the norm. And these people inherit some sort of cultural belief, but we know they're not living for Jesus. At best, they're going to get schooled real quick. If they're humble they'll sign on real fast. But if they think that just believing is going to save them, but they haven't actually lived their life for him and signed on and repented of their sins and all that, that isn't going to work out very well. Jesus doesn't kill or cause destruction. That is not what he said. His goodness means that he wants my life to be comfortable and safe from bad or painful things. Jesus said, many will be deceived and they will stumble because they are offended. Another place he said, blessed is he who is not offended because of me. I've been there. I'll bet everybody in the room has. If you've walked with Jesus for more than three weeks, you've been mad at him. Come on. Because whether we say it or not out loud, we want that to be true. So bad do we want that to be true. That I signed on to Jesus and he's my healer and my savior and my protector and I won't ever have problems. We couch it in a nice religious language like blessing and prosperity of soul and all these nice things. Blessed is he who is not offended because of me. At best, when things get hard in your personal life or the world at large, we're going to have some adjustments to make and some choices to make. Am I in this for life and death, no matter what? Or am I going to be offended and run? Jesus paid the cost for me, I won't need to pay a cost for him. God is not ever angry, he's happy all the time. That one isn't going to work out very well. God has no more wrath for sin. Jesus took all that. I heard that from a famous preacher. Lots of you have heard it. It's, an, it's... Anybody who read any portion of the New Testament once would know it's not true. But it's fooling many thousands of people in the American church that God is not angry with sin anymore. The devil has no power or authority anymore. That one isn't going to work out real well either. Called the ruler of this world. Jesus, you read in Revelation 3 this week, Jesus said where he has his throne. He's, He's a defeated foe, but he's not dethroned. He's called the ruler of this world after the resurrection. Jesus took his keys of hell and death, but he's still here and he's still the king of the world. He's not our king but he's the king of the world. And he's still got power, and he can still accomplish, try to accomplish what he wants. If I have enough faith, I won't have to be a martyr. Jesus will protect me. Jesus did say, pray that you escape all that is about to come. He told us to run when we see it happening. But if you are scared to die for Jesus, that means that you haven't yet died for him. And only dead people get into heaven. I don't think every Christian is going to be killed when the Antichrist sets up his government. It's not going to happen that way, but... But historically, Jesus said, you will take up your cross and follow me. The apostles had that happen. Many Christians over 2,000 years have had it happen. It's happening right now in our day. Other places in the world, no, not in Northeast Oregon, but lots of the rest of the world is paying that cost for Jesus. And it may come to you and me too. Love is more important than truth. That's a huge one. If that bothers you, you are who I'm talking to. I'm not saying that truth is more important than love. Love is not more important than truth. There's a terrible deception in the name of love and accepting everybody and forgiveness and grace that throws truth out the window. If I love people like Jesus did, everyone will like me. That one probably isn't gonna work out very well for you either. So, hopefully I've scared the hell out of you by now. And I mean that literally. So let me ask this question for you because I know some of you are thinking it. How can I know that I'm not gonna be one that has the strong delusion, that gets fooled into following false teaching? How I, how can I know that I won't be the one who is deceived? Paul and Peter and Jude all tell us exactly how it happens. 2 Thessalonians 2 again. Now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to Him, we ask you not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled, either by spirit or by word or by letter, as if from us. First thing Paul says is don't be afraid. Because fear is always going to lead you away from the truth and away from Jesus, not toward Him. Faith leads us toward Jesus and toward the truth. Don't be afraid. Don't be shaken or troubled by anything anybody tells you. Skipping a few verses, Paul says, Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? He says to his church, I say to you, we're talking about this ahead of time, so when it comes, it won't be a surprise. We're not talking about it so that everybody, while he's here, terrified. Oh, bad things are on the way. Bad things happen every day. We just shine our light. All right? We're talking about these things because Jesus did, Paul did, they were not afraid to talk about the dark and heavy and bad stuff. Hello? Jesus talked openly, described hell more than heaven. There's a reason for that. Paul is not afraid to back, he doesn't back off on talking about these things that, about the dark stuff that's going to happen. Skipping down to verse 10, he says, In all unrighteous deception among those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth, that they might be saved. There it is. These people refused to love the truth. If you are honest and humble and open-hearted, I want to know Jesus no matter what that means. I'm not going to stay away from the scary stuff, and I'm not going to insist on believing the stuff I want to be true. I'm going to know the real Jesus and I'm going to believe the full scripture no matter what it says. You will not be deceived. Skipping down to verse 13, Paul says, We are bound to give thanks to God always for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God from the beginning chose you for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and believing in the truth. Guess what? God chose you. Jesus said in John, you didn't choose me, I chose you, that you would go and bear fruit and fruit that lasts. We use the term, I found Jesus. No, he found us. We use the term, I accepted Jesus. No, he accepted us. Jesus picked you. I said Jesus picked you. If he picked you, you are his. And he said, I will not lose anyone that the Father puts in my hand. You are not a counterfeit sheep. You're not a fake Christian because you want to live honestly and fully and completely for Jesus because you heard his call in your heart and you answered, yes, he picked you. Four, sanctification by the Spirit, it is the Spirit's work to wash our hearts clean. And it is our work to believe in the truth. To which he called you by our gospel for the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which you were taught, whether by word or our epistle, which means letter. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and our God and Father who has loved us and given us everlasting consolation and good hope by grace comfort your hearts and establish you in every good word and work. Paul has just spent a chapter and a half talking about all the bad stuff. And he says, be at peace, be consoled. Jesus is good. He's got you in his hand. You will not fall. Yeah. Hello? Yeah. And how does he say, "Don't you are the one who won't be deceived. How do you know you're the chosen? Follow the traditions you were taught by me. Yeah. Back last year, I taught you a sermon. I, I, I preached on the we follow the apostles, not just Jesus. I've since learned that that is the most important thing I have ever told you. Because the deceptions are always a rejection of what the apostles told us. And it's always in the language of, I'm just following Jesus. Paul says, you were called to salvation by whose gospel? Mine. How do you know you won't be deceived? Do what I told you and you won't fall away. That's Paul's words. Jude says it this way. Jude is Jesus' little brother, remember. He knows Jesus very well. He says, you, beloved, remember the words which were spoken before by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's just spent his entire letter talking about falseness, hypocrisy, and hidden sin, false teaching in the church. And he says, you that I'm writing to are not those people. Remember what the apostles told us. He doesn't say Jesus. We follow the apostles as they follow Jesus. I mean, their model is how Jesus meant for us to live out Christianity. 2 Peter 3. Peter has just spent two chapters talking about the end of the world and the falseness in the church and the earth being burned up by fire. And he says, Beloved, I now write to you this second letter, to remind you that you be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior. Do you see it? Yes. Peter says, obey me. We have first and second Peter. Paul says, listen to me. We've got quite a few of his letters. Jude says, listen to us. Yes. So again, there are people who want to say, well, we just follow Jesus. The early church got it wrong. That's it's always deception. We follow the apostles. Skipping down in 2 Peter 3, he says this, Therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things. Thanks, Peter. We're supposed to look forward to all this. Yeah. <laughs> looking forward to these things. Be diligent to be found by him in peace without spot and blameless. There it is again. And consider that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, as also our beloved Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you, as also in his, all his letters, or epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction, as they do also the rest of the Scriptures. Peter says, after writing two chapters on the world being burned by fire and the falseness in the church and false teaching and hypocrisy, he says, remember what we taught you and you'll stay on the narrow path. And he says, now listen, Paul's written a bunch of letters and even to me, they're hard to understand. (laughs) Peter says, Paul is hard to understand. But he says, unstable and untaught people twist what Paul said to their own destruction. Because they want, they have an agenda. Peter says, take the whole thing, all of it together in context, all of us together in context, and you won't miss it. You therefore, beloved, since you know this beforehand, beware, lest you also fall from your own steadfastness, being led away with the error of the wicked, but grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and forever. Amen. 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 You, I trust, are the chosen. You want to know the real, full truth. The stuff that's fun and the stuff that doesn't taste so good. We will eat it all. Both John and Ezekiel, when they eat the scroll, which is the word of God, it tasted bitter in their mouth, but it was sweet in their heart. There are truths like this one that aren't fun. This isn't a shout amen, glory, hallelujah, run around the church building kind of Sunday. But it's true. And it's absolutely necessary to talk about. And believe it or not, it is a hopeful message. It is a hopeful message. Anything about Jesus and what he will do is hopeful and full of life. It's not me being alarmist. An alarm is rude and loud on purpose. I'm not attempting to be alarmist or stir anybody up in fear or anything like that, but it's the truth and it's going to happen. It's one of the signs of his return that there will be great falseness or hypocrisy in the church. We're there. There's an embrace of all sorts of sexual sins and worldliness and compromise in lots of people's lives. If that's you, I'm calling you out today. Be washed clean. Come clean. Don't hide sin. Don't be a hypocrite. Don't be a fake Christian. Who's good on Sunday morning, but does ungodly things in the rest of the week. Jesus wants all of you. He wants you to be the pure and spotless bride, not the spot that he has to wash off of his bride. He wants you holy and white and clean, burning with his fire of his love, not cold with lawlessness. Amen. Amen. If you need to make that decision this morning, maybe for the first time, or maybe you have been in the church for a long time, but you need to get right with God and get clean, I would love to pray with you this morning. we got other elders and prayer team people, I'm sure, that will make themselves available if, if need be. So let's pray together, and let me bless you. If you need to pray with me or talk with me afterwards, I would love to do that. Lord Jesus, thank you for your truth. Thank you for your warnings. Thank you for your descriptions of what to watch for and your return. Lord, we thank you for loving us as a husband loves a bride, that you are committed to us and you are washing us clean, making us spotless and pure and acceptable. Lord, I ask that if there's anyone here that needs to repent, that needs to come clean, that needs to come out of the darkness, I pray that you would bring them up right now by conviction of your Holy Spirit to get right with you, to not hide sin or live in hypocrisy or excuses or justifications for lawlessness anymore. Lord, for anyone here that doesn't know you, that needs to come to you even for the first time, Lord, we bless them. We welcome them, Lord. Bring repentance and salvation and freedom from sin this morning. We love you, Jesus. We love to be your pure and holy bride. Thank you for washing us clean with your blood as we sang earlier. Thank you for the supreme security of knowing that you chose us. And you will not lose us. We love you. We bless you. In Jesus' name. Amen.